Good afternoon. I'm Anne Mossett from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to see so many of you here today um, to hear from our honoured guest, Sir Terry Pratchett, who will be talking this afternoon with Australian author Garth Nix. Sir Terry, as you all know, is an extraordinary writer and one who inspires the love and loyalty of an extraordinary group of readers. You, here in the audience, in costume or not, we saw a few great hats out there in the foyer. So I'd like to welcome you to the concert hall, an honorary part of Discworld for the afternoon. Sir Terry's a prolific writer, author of many novels and perhaps most notably the Discworld series, currently with 38 novels published and the 39th, Snuff, coming out later this year. Since The Carpet People was published in 1971, his books have sold more than 60 million copies in 37 languages. He's often described as a fantasy writer, and there's no denying he's created a complete world of those elements that we associate with fantasy. But the comedy and satire that are also his hallmark make him a very sharp commentator also on this world, the real world, and a unique and powerful voice in fiction. So Terry was knighted in 2009 for his services to literature. In 2007, he was diagnosed with a rare form of early-onset Alzheimer's disease and has become a lucid and courageous voice in favour of assisted suicide, of people being able to choose their own death and die with dignity. As you'll know if you read his candid question to our Prime Minister in the Sydney Morning Herald the other day, why is assisted suicide banned in Australia, Julia? We're lucky enough to have in conversation with Sir Terry this afternoon another wonderful writer, Australian author Garth Nix. Garth's first book, The Ragwish, was published in 1990 and has been followed by the award-winning fantasy novels um, in the Old Kingdom series, Sabrael, Lyriel and Aborson, the wonderful young adult novel, Shades Children, the six books of the Seventh Tower sequence and, um, of course, the Keys to the Kingdom series. So it's my great pleasure to welcome both of them to the stage um, to, to, to entertain and uh, enlighten us with their conversation, so Terry Pratchett and Garth Nix. We, we can rotate in our chairs. Only if they're very good. <laughs> well, you have been warned. If I rotate on my chair, my brandy will spill. <laughs> must be careful. I didn't get a brandy. Oh, well. That's the way it goes. Um, it's a tremendous honour for me to be talking to you today, Sir Terry Pratchett. I've been a fan of your books since I can't remember when. The Colour of Magic I read when it first came out and all the books since. And one of the best things about being here today uh, and getting this gig, as it were, was that for the last month I've been rereading Terry Pratchett novels. And when anyone asks me what I'm doing, I can say, work. <laughs> So it is a great privilege and an, a tremendous honour. Now, we're going to get started, um, I believe, with a reading from your forthcoming novel, Snuff, That's by uh, Rob Wilkins. Uh, but if you no, it was by Terry Pratchett. It's by Terry Pratchett. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be read by... Read by Rob, uh, Wilkins. Rob Wilkins, yes. yes. Very, a very important I don't want that rumour to speak. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We'll, we'll nip that in the bud. Yeah. 
And of course, the other, the other thing I, I should say, I guess, is that uh, it's also a tremendous honour to be here with you in the round world equivalent of the bugger up opera house. Yeah, it, it certainly is a buggered up opera house. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I trust they didn't make you come via the kitchen and invent a dessert on the way, though. Hey, you know, I thought, because uh, you know what we're talking about, uh, the last continent, um, I thought I knew exactly how you could make a peach, but you just need two peaches for heaven's sake. <laughs> That's right. Uh, ahem, that, that was in, well, in the best possible taste. That sounds, mm. Yes, that sounds like a pretty good dessert, I think. Who um, wouldn't want to bite into one? <laughs> well, that's right. So, but perhaps to, uh, we're getting started with that reading from right. your next novel, okay. which is very eagerly awaited, I'm sure, by everybody here. If you could perhaps just set the scene for the reading that we're, we're going to hear. Okay. Um, in the short form, it's like this. Um, Commander Vimes of the Ankle Port City Watch finds himself, I won't explain exactly why, uh, down in the shires, a long way from his normal stamping ground. Um, uh, and uh, I cannot divulge the reason why he's there. And he, re he feels really out of his element. And... Uh, is wandering listfully around the place. He doesn't understand the countryside. He thinks trees are just another s stiff weed <laughs> which people get excited about. Um, but he's also, like any policeman, well, let me put it like this. We know what happens to policemen and detectives when they go on holiday. Don't we, boys and girls? <laughs> I mean, look at Hercule Poirot. It doesn't matter where he goes. I'm going to the seaside for, for le, le motin. Oh, yeah, sacre bleu. Dead people in the bucket. <laughs> yeah. Um, they can't go anywhere, can they? They just can't go anywhere. No, no. So, um, over to you, Mr. Wilkins. Hello. Um, blimey. There's a couple of words that we're not allowed to use in our office, and one of them is fun, so I hope you're not all having fun. And uh, the other one's awesome, but I walked out here, and I'm sorry, Terry, but I'm going to have to use it. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, Bob, you know very well, I have told you about this a million times, it's not awesome unless you see God, Jesus, and all his works oh. <laughs> descending from heaven. I think everything back, everything else is cool. <laughs> but I have got to say just one thing before we start actually um, we've been over here for what seems like about 57 years now and um, we've had a great time we really have had an absolutely fantastic time uh, the guys who organised the convention uh, we I know where you are because I can see you out there. It was, that was awesome, and I'll have that. So um, from me and from Terry, thank you, Australia. We have had a ball. Thank you. Here, here. But now I'm going to shut up. 
No, I'm not actually, because that wouldn't make so good reading, would it? No, I'll, I, I will start reading. Okay. Sam Vimes has dropped into his local country pub, where he learns about a fascinating local hobby and meets an old adversary. Vimes was becoming aware that the pub was filling up, mostly with other sons of the soil, but also with people who, whether they were gentlemen or not, would expect to be called so. They wore colourful caps and white trousers and spoke continuously. Outside, horses and carriages were filling the lane. Hammering was going on somewhere, and Jiminy's wife was now manning, or more correctly, womaning, the bar, while her husband ran back and forth with his tray. Vimes took a look out at the grubby pub windows. Regrettably, the pub was that most terrifying of things. It was picturesque, which meant that the window consisted of small round panes fixed in place with lead. They were for letting light in, not for looking out of, since they bent light so erratically that it nearly broke. One pane showed what was probably a sheep, but which looked like a white whale. Well, until it moved, when it became a mushroom. <laughs> a man walked past with no head until he reached another pane, and then had one enormous eyeball. Young Sam would have loved it, but his father decided to give eventual blindness a miss and stepped out into the sunshine. Ah, he thought, some kind of game. Oh well. Vimes wasn't keen on games because they led to crowds, and crowds led to work for coppers. But here, in fact, he wasn't a copper, was he? It was a strange feeling, so he left the pub and became an innocent bystander. He couldn't remember when he'd been one before. It felt uh, vulnerable. He strolled over to the nearest man who was hammering some stakes into the ground and asked, What's going on here, then? <laughs> but realising quickly that he'd spoken in copper rather than an ordinary citizen, he added, uh, If you don't mind me asking... <laughs> The man straightened up. He was one of the ones with the colourful caps. Haven't you seen the game of Crockett, sir? It's the game of games. Mr. Civilian Vimes did his best to look like a man eager for more delicious inf information. Judging by his informant's enthusiastic grin, he was about to learn the rules of Crockett, whether he wanted to or not. Well, he thought, I did ask. At first sight, sir, Crockett might seem like just another ball game, wherein two sides strive against one another by endeavouring to propel the ball by hand or bat or other device against the opponent's goal of some sort. Crockett, however, was invented during a game of croquet at St. Onan's Theological College in Ham-on-Rye, when the novice priest, Jackson Fieldfair, now the Bishop of Quirm, took his mallet in both hands, and instead of giving the ball a gentle tap... Dot, dot, dot. After that, Vimes gave up. Not only because the rules of the game were incomprehensible in their own right, but also because the extremely enthusiastic young man allowed his enthusiasm to overtake any consideration of the need to explain things in some sensible order. Which meant that the flood of information was continually punctuated by apologetic comments on the lines of, oh, I am sorry, I should have explained earlier that a second cone is not allowed more than once per exchange, and in normal play, there's only one ton. But, oh, oh, unless, of course, you're talking about Royal Crockett. Vimes died. <laughs> the sun dropped out of the sky, giant lizards took over the world, the stars exploded and went out, and all hope vanished with a gurgle into the sink trap of oblivion. And gas filled the firmament and combusted, and behold, there was a new heaven, one careful owner, and a new disc, and lo, and possibly verily, life crawled out of the sea, or possibly didn't, because it had been made by the gods, that was really up to the bystander, and lizards. 
And lizards turned into less scaly lizards, or possibly didn't. And lizards turned into birds, and worms turned into butterflies. And a species of apple turned into bananas. And possibly a kind of monkey fell out of a tree and realised that life was better when you didn't have to spend your time hanging around on something. And in only a few million years, evolved trousers and ornamental stripy hats. And, la and lastly, the game of croquet. <laughs> And And there, magically reincarnated, was Sam Vimes, a little dizzy, standing on the village green, looking into the smiling countenance of an enthusiast. He managed to say, well, that's amazing, thank you so very much, I look forward to enjoying the game. At which point, he thought, a brisk walk home might be in order, only to be foiled by a regrettably familiar voice behind him, saying, You! I say you! Yes, you! Aren't you Vimes? It was Lord Rust, usually of Ankh-Morpork and a fierce old warhorse, without whose unique grasp of strategy and tactics, several wars would not have been so bloodily won. Now he was in a wheelchair, a newfangled variety pushed by a man whose life was, was knowing his lordship, quite possibly unbearable. But hatred tends not to have a long half-life, and in recent years, Vimes has regarded the man as now no more than a titled idiot, rendered helpless by age, yet still possessed of an annoyingly horsey voice that, suitably harnessed, might be used to saw down trees. <laughs> Lord Rust was not a problem anymore. There were surely only a few more years to go before he would rust in peace. <laughs> and, and somewhere in his knobbly heart, Vimes still retained a slight admiration for the cantankerous old butcher, whose evergreen self-esteem and absolute readiness not to change his mind about anything at all. The old boy had reacted to the fact that Vimes, the hated policeman, was now a duke, and therefore a lot more knobby than he was, by simply assuming that this could not possibly be true, and therefore totally ignored him. So, Lord Rust, in Vimes's book, was a dangerous buffoon, but here was the difficult bit, an incredibly, if suicidally, brave one. This would have been absolutely tickety-boo were it not for the suicides of those poor fools who followed him into battle. Witnesses had said that it was uncanny. Rust would gallop into the jaws of death at the head of his men and was never seen to flinch. Yet arrows and morning stars always missed him while invariably hitting the men right behind him. Bystanders, or rather people peering at the battle from behind comfortably large rocks, had testified to this. Perhaps he was capable of ignoring too the arrows meant for him. But age could not be so easily upstaged, and the old man, while no less arrogant, had a sunken look. Rust, most unusually, smiled at Vimes and said, First time I've seen you down here, Vimes. Is Sybil going back to her roots? What? She, she wants young Sam to get some mud on her boots, Rust. Well done, her. What? It'll do the boy good and make a man of him. What? <laughs> Vimes never understood where the explosive watts came from. <laughs> After all, he thought, what's the point of just barking out, what? For absolutely no discernible reason. And as for, what, what? <laughs> well, what was all that about? <laughs> Why, what? Uh, what seemed to be tent pegs hammered into the conversation. But what the hell for? What? <laughs> So, not down here on any official business, then. What? Vimes' mind spun so quickly that Rush should have heard the wheels go round. 
It analyzed the tone of voice, the look of the man, that slight, ever so slight, but nevertheless perceptible hint of a hope that the answer would be no, and presented him with a suggestion that it might not be a bad idea to drop a tiny kitten amongst the pigeons. <laughs> he laughed. Well, Rust, Sybil's been banging on about me coming down here since young Sam was born, and this year she put her foot down, and I suppose an order from the wife must be considered official. When? <laughs> Vimes saw the man who pushed the enormous wheelchair try to conceal a smile, especially when Rust responded with a baffle. What? <laughs> Vimes decided not to go with, where? And... <laughs> And instead, in an offhand way, said, Well, you know how it is, Lord Rust. A policeman will find a crime anywhere he decides to look hard enough for it. Lord Rust's smile remained, but it had congealed slightly as he said, I should listen to the advice of your good lady, Vimes. I don't think you'll find anything worth your metal down here. <coughs> there was no what to follow, and the lack of it was somehow an emphasis. There you go. So, so that's Snuff, which is out late this year, I think. Yes, that's right. That's right. Which, uh, another City Watch novel, but not in Ankh-Morpork. Um, not all in Ankh-Morpork. Right. And, uh, with, and it's not even as simple as that, either. <laughs> <coughs> My book fell the mile, I feel. Um, and it was a, a great, f f great fun doing it. And, and I'm sure you know... It's very nice to have to do some research because it's a bit of time off. Yes. Even if you're not quite certain what it is you're researching for. Yes. Um, and uh, there's, there's quite a lot of stuff sort of tagged on to snuff in my memory. Um, but I, I'm quite pleased with it. But we, we need to wait before we can ask you any more questions. Yes. T talking about research, all your books are so connected with history and myth and legend. There's so many things that can be teased out yeah. of all the books. I, I actually wondered, when did that start for you? I, I'd like to actually sort of go, go back to your childhood. I mean, in one of your interviews I read it, you said you were born on the chalk, which of course reminded me of Tiffany Aching. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, was, you know, if that was an expression that you heard as a child, and then many, many years later, that little thread becomes yeah, part yeah. of Yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I was born in the Chilterns, which is chalk country. Actually, I was built, I, I was born in a place called, well, I, well actually, according to, well, my mum and dad had stayed put. Yeah, I was, I was born there as well. Uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, I was actually born in Forty Green, which was, I think at that point, just off the chalk, <coughs> because we were on gravel. You're not going to say, I was born on the gravel. I mean, good grief. But you know, for practical purposes, it was the same kind of, same kind of um, life. Probably unaltered since the time of my grandfather, and ever since he was, was uh, uh, a, a kid. And uh, as you gather, if you've read the books, that's where some part of I Shall, I Shall Wear Midnight came from, because in the ozone, 
In the old days, the old boys would talk to the kids without actually being sent to prison. Yes. <laughs> and so you could hear all the old stuff, which is actually what old people are there for. There can't be any other reason. You know, it's, it's, it's to tell, no, it's to tell the kids what it was like once upon a time. Because, um, do you know my father could have shaken hands with Wyatt Earp? He could have. Yes. Well, I mean, if he'd been in America, he was nine years old. He was in... I was going to say, the Hills. No, what I mean is, history is very close. He's contemporaneous. Yes, I mean... Yes, he was alive when Wyatt Earp was, and so he could have shaken hands with Wyatt Earp. And when I tell people that, they say, no, he couldn't. I mean, Wyatt Earp was a historical character. And I said, I've got news for you. My father is a historical character. As far as I know. You know, he, um, he died in his um, 80s. Uh, but there is still that kind of lineage, if you see what I mean. Yes, uh, you can follow back. And all that sort of thing really, really works. You know, and, it's, and it's worth sharing. Wasn't it in your childhood, uh, you actually, uh, in one interview, said that you had a, you had a, what did you say, restricted childhood or a, a deprived childhood? Yes. But, but not deprived in the usual way. Mm -hmm. You uh, see, supposing I'd been brought up as a Catholic, then I would have rebelled against it around about the age of 11, and they would have to beat me with sticks and heavy metal beats. And I would have, you know, mental scars, and I would have written really good first-class uh, booker-winning books. Instead, my parents couldn't carry, couldn't care a fig about religion. Um, except in one little um, part, which I shall mention. My mum and dad are kind of... It's from them I got the idea of Jesus' light, which is, people know what Jesus said. You know, basically, Bill and Ted said it as well. Be excellent to one another. <laughs> and that is it. You don't need anything else if you follow that one. All, all crime, all everything disappears. The fact that people aren't going to isn't really going to change it because they're never going to whatever you do. But that's a good starting point. You don't need to go to church, you don't need these other things, you just have to have accepted the golden rule, as indeed the golden rule. Although my mother did keep a tiny, tiny little wooden crucifix, a crucifix which meant a lot to me. Um, because apparently when I was six, I came out of my parents' bedroom one day when she was doing the cleaning and said, look, Mum, I found a stick with an acrobat in it. <laughs> um, and instead of giving me a wallet, apparently she, uh, she, she laughed about it and told everybody. Um, but when she died, I spent, I, as Rob knows, I was even picking up the, f the carpets on the floor trying to find it, and she had kept it all those years, and I keep it. It means a lot to me because it meant a lot to her. But not as a religious artifact, but as... I don't know what it was. I think it was... I, one side, um, she told me, my, my mother was like me, and her grandfather was Irish. My mother was one to put a shine on an anecdote. <laughs> um, and she told me that um, there was one part member of the family somewhere, an extended family, 
who was Catholic and said that if my mother um, uh, married my father, who was um, nominally CFE, then uh, their children would be bastards. Got that one right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but my mum, any religious leaning she had then went, but she still kept the group crucifix, and I respect that. Mm. And I would never set fire to one, even though I think it is an instrument of torture. And when you start off a, start off a religion with an instrument of torture being worshipped, um, you know, if, if I was a Christian, I would be one of those that live up in the hills somewhere and never come out very often other, to, other than to burn everybody down. <laughs> because, there are so many, because there are so many metaphors and it's so hard, it's so easy to find a recipe to allow you to beat the crap out of somebody. <laughs> On the other hand, um, I've been instrumental in, in bringing back to work in life a small church near me. Um, it was quite expensive, and it's the nicest church. And someone said, but you're a humanist. And I said, yeah, well, humans will be going to this church. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I rather like them. They're nice people. That's a community. That's a sort of community aspect as opposed well, to... Well, yes, we're English. We don't let old churches go. <laughs> Otherwise, what the hell would we get? <laughs> I, I believe it's always been optional to actually believe in God as a... As a uh, Anyway, where'd you do well, that? I know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, that's why they invented theology. Uh, uh, <laughs> where'd you do have a question from the, the audience? We have a number of submitted questions. We, we ask people to send in questions. This is, this is actually what came in, um, <clears throat> which I'll, I'll have to look through to find where to the yes, question. Yes, yes. I've edited it down though. There is, a, there is a relevant question from the audience on this, and I'll, uh, we, we have a number of questions that I've been told I have to try and weave into the conversation. So this is me trying to weave in. Maybe I should have had a loom or something. Um, here we are. This is a question from uh, Hugh Maynus. Oh, it should be Hugh Weaving. Is Hugh here in the audience? Do we, we can't see you, but you can sort of wave your arms around. He could be on the podcast. He could be absolutely side. anywhere. Well, let's test it. Hugh's question is The Discworld novels were instrumental in my atheist awakening, and I thank Pratchett for this. I wonder whether, this is, this is, I'll translate this into the first person, I wonder whether you're aware of this effect on your readers. Um, I'm humanist, not atheist, because a lot of the problems in this world are, well, certainly among man and man, are caused by, caused by too much certainty. You must always leave the possibility that you are wrong. Humanist is very faithful. So even atheism is too far, too, too far down one end of certainty. It's hedging your bets, humanism. <laughs> um, but a lot of, um, I've heard of lots of, uh, um, I've heard a lot of scientists talk about this. And, and I read at an early age, I, I read, um, of course, um, Darwin at a very early age. 
and then spin over. And God knows why I went spin over at the age of 15. But I like the God of Spinoza, who is kind of a non-existent God. But um, it, it's pretty good to go on with. And, and so many scientists seem to me have this nagging idea that behind it all there must be some purpose. Except, I mean, my, my view has always been that, that uh, we are on this, uh, we are in the universe, being humans building telescopes and things like that. Are there, are the human, are the, um, we are the way in which the universe knows what it is. We are the bit. We're the observers. We are the, well, we are the observers. And, uh, and we, we actually tell it what it is. Otherwise, what is it? Until the storyteller tells the story, what is it? Um, and so, so, so I'm, so I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk to, to anyone about any kind of religion. And indeed, I, uh, I will talk to Jehovah's Witnesses until they say, gosh, is that the time? <laughs> <laughs> Which is no small achievement. <laughs> of course, I mean, religion plays a, a, a part in, in the discord. But, uh, but it's, it's such an important part in the world. Yeah. Well, actually, some would say a very unimportant part in the world. But it plays um, such a, uh, a provoking role in the world. Mostly at making certain three peoples who all have the same religious book are these days almost always constantly at war with one another. Think of the loss. If we ganged up, we could beat the Buddhists. Or could we? Well, I don't know. I mean, they're not, they're not armed which would make a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and think, how can you respect religion when three religions which are as different from one another as a ham sandwich um, and something that isn't a ham isn't sandwich? sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, when what are, uh, the, the rest of the world is, is, has a, 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 a fairly peaceful time at the moment, one way or the other. Um, while three um, children of the book squabble with one another. Remarkably similar ones, really. A very, yes, yeah. yes, again, the sickness of a ham sandwich. You, you draw on religion as a, as a source of satire, as you draw on uh, many, many other things. On the other hand, I will point out to you that in Small God's brother, um, demonstrated Christianity. It um, wasn't seen as Christianity, it wasn't real as Christianity, but what he did was the Christian thing. Yeah. Uh, which in this case wasn't to go and kill someone that had a different kind of Christianity to him. But it was, this was actually to, as it were, love someone who had persecuted him and as it were, put his feet on the right path, even if they were the path to uh, ultimately, yeah, hell in that man's case. But there we are. It, it, it's, it's a feature, and it's a feature that I, I, I like to play with. As you play with so many other things, and I guess you know, you've become known as, as probably the best known satirist working in the English language today. Mm. And you draw on everything. Except maybe since Alan Collin died. <laughs> no one could be Alan Collin. Right. But 
but I, th I think you know you you are widely recognised for that. And I, I was wondering, I mean, you draw on, on everything. You you satirise so many different things. Mm. What what comes first? But you, you know how this you know because you're a writer. Yeah, I, I, I had a T-shirt on this, but it, they, they were late taking the laundry. Um, it doesn't matter what you write. It doesn't matter what you put in the books. Um, how good it is, how good they're written, and how it, 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 it sears its way through the through the um, through the human condition, um, opens new uh, new thoughts and new uh, ways of looking at the world. And then you put in one lousy dragon, and the bastards call you a fantasy artist. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you are. Shake hands on that one. Yo. Um, Yes. It, 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 it took a long time. It was the sheer weight of numbers. Yes. Um, and people actually started looking beyond that and saying, hang on, despite being a fantasy author, this guy is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, we've gone through that now, yeah. but I think other people have to go through it. It's, a, it's an ongoing process, I think. I mean, there's, there's the whole sort of magic realism... Now, this is a respectable fantasy issue and, and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and we all know that if a mainstream author, I now I am actually a mainstream author. I am a mainstream author. Absolutely. Because fantasy is now mainstream anyway. Yes. God help us, there are our grandparents out there that speak Klingon. <laughs> um, and, and then indeed, now the Booker winners are a kind of genre. It's yes. the Booker genre. genre. Um, it's, uh, fantasy has become respectable. Um, well, put it like this, it's allowed to come indoors if it wipes its feet. <laughs> but we'd rather if it took its meals in the kitchen. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I mean, you've, you've been writing all through the period where it wasn't very respectable, and moving into, into and, and you yourself are, are an example of how it has become rec recognised and so on. Um, because I think maybe even 20 years ago, fantasy writers we certainly wouldn't have been knighted, I wouldn't have thought, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, well, if Tolkien lived to a... No, I can, actually, you're right, he wouldn't have done either. Mm. I mean, in, in those days, they just... Well, the 60s hadn't, well, hadn't finished. Yeah. The world changed. All, all things changed because men die. Um, and then the world is ready for something new. I mean, once when I, when I was a kid, you know, gay, you know, laughed at or hated or whatever. Um, and, and now my daughter thinks nothing of it. I mean, she, she works in the entertainment industry and, she, and uh, one of her friends said, uh, if you work in the entertainment industry and don't like gays, what are you doing there for heaven's sake? Yeah. <laughs> um, no one really, thinks, no one except the oldest and, and least well sort of really focused. Has any, has any bother with it at all. Um, and, and so things go on. Um, generations stream away and there are new things. And things are constantly changing. I mean... Can I swivel a bit to let yeah, them not... I keep thinking they're looking at us. Right. Support the downtrodden. <laughs> Sorry about that. I've lost my train of thought. Um, People do. The swivelling, the swivelling. The swivelling, yes, it's I'm dizzy. dizzy. Yeah. Um, 
we, we, you touched on Tolkien there briefly, and I, I think I read that you first read The Lord of the Rings in one incredible In one go, absolutely, yeah. And then read it again. I had to sleep at one point, but I actually slept. <laughs> like... <laughs> With the three volumes on your on your on your chest, yeah. Um, but in a, so Tolkien obviously had a, a serious impact at yes, that time. Yes. Um, and, but then moving on, part of of the colour of magic was in fact satirising some of the things that had arisen from Tolkien. Well, arisen from the fact that now clearly fantasy was a money spinner. There were lots of quasi Tolkien. Um, Terry Brooks and so on. No, but they were the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of others. Um, you, you read, do you read Lo Locus? Oh, yes. You yes, know, yes. It's, it's full of very large Americans giving awards to other fairly large Americans <laughs> that you've never heard of. Um, no, I remember looking one looking at one, one um, edition of that, and there were no more than, than uh, three Dark Lords <laughs> in, in, in separate books. And I thought, how hard is it to ring some changes into all this? Mm. I mean, that's why... Is that what prompted the Colour of Magic? Was well, it, uh... it was this, can we, can we stop this silliness? Well, then I don't come and make it. Or mine that and take it, make it much more interesting and take it one step further, I, I guess. Um, well, Colour of Magic was um, a novice thing, really. I'd done stuff before it. I don't think I really got... I don't think I reached journeyman status. Um until I shall wear midnight. Because I would put my finger on that and say, and say, either I'm, well, either I'm a journeyman now, or I never will be. I think you probably have to leave that to others to judge. <laughs> um, because to me, yeah. I would say that you, you are definitely a master. Um, thank you for saying that. Thank you. I, I think I, 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 you've got my message. <laughs> no. But it's you, you, bring I would, you, you can never, you know you're a journeyman, because I remember when I was a, because I was a, a journalist and a trainee, in fact I was, um, you know, a real indentured... Uh, you had a real apprenticeship. A real apprentice, yeah. yeah. And, and I knew when I'd reached gentleman's so that means, um, doesn't know it by a long way, but it's fit enough to be let out there and, you know, you can send him out on you a crime story. You know what you don't know. Um, and now he's got all the... He's got the basics and he's not going to let us down. But it's up to him now. Sometimes they were, you, you, there was another status called improver. Um, and, and so then that's when you started to move around right. to learn different things, you know, so you're not always having one master. I wanted to ask you about the journalism too, uh, because you actually managed to get fiction in, in your newspaper. 
in the, the, the Bucks Free Press. Oh, yeah, yeah. Writing uh, his uncle, uncle, uh, uncle Jim. Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim. And, and some, some of those stories are available uh, online now, and you can go back and read them. Shit, I don't get a penny from them. People are talking about that. Well, hopefully, they, they prompt them to, to they, they read them, they prompt them I mean, to go and buy your books. But yeah, that's an apprenticeship too in, in writing stories. I mean, you write, well, the thing was, it, it was simple as this. Um, I tried, I, I'd already sold a couple of short stories. And I'd, I'd buy it all the time. And uh, uh, when I joined, they said, now you've got to write Uncle Gim. Because no one wanted to write Uncle Gim. So Uncle, Uncle Gim, Gim existed before. Oh, yes, it did, yeah, oh, yeah. And, okay. and I wouldn't have called it Uncle Gim, I'd have called it. Oh, gnarly. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <I am> children. <laughs> um, uh, and I, and I, I thought, this is an easy piece, a piece of piss. Um, and um, because I like writing anyway, I started over writing it at home. And I was writing it very, very long. Um, well, not by today's standards. And, uh, and I had to sab it, <laughs> sab it down to what space was in the newspaper. Um, and that wasn't too difficult either. And it was a thing I did, and I didn't really think of it as my copyright or stuff like that. It was work I was doing as an apprentice. And, and I was glad to do it. And it. But I guess a great craft exercise in, in the craft of writing. But I thought it was interesting because you can see some sort of proto-disworld, early oh, yeah, yeah. prehistoric Pratchett sort of stuff coming through. I mean, the steam room and Isambard nuisance Brunel, I think his name was, and things like that. Yeah, I've uh, forgotten about him. He was probably, <laughs> probably uh, an early forerunner of a bloody stupid uh, Johnson. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Britain's worst inventor ever. Yeah. Um, and so reading those stories, I mean, it was fascinating to, to, to look through you know, that, that development. Um, Great days, they were. Because <laughs> I used to um, sub my own copy of... Um, because I'd, I'd been working at, at, at home without extra pay, of course. And uh, I'd bring it down, and in the morning I'd sub my own copy as a sub-editor. And then we'd do the spikes, which the trainee journalists had to do. We'd take stuff off the spike, you know, stuff, bits of... It really is just filing, but you file everything on one big spike wow. like that. Which and, and, and about a Soon or... I'm a lucky one. I'm the only one in, in, the, in the whole there that never had... And now a big, much bigger gap between these fingers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, we, then uh, me and the, the other trainee, we'd go out uh, to Wickham Market in the freezing weather quite often, and we would have um, a plate, a plate of cockles with, with um, in, in uh, um, what, what do I have to call vinegar? And, and chat to press wood which, which doesn't sound very nice, to tell you the truth. Compared to, what, compared to what you guys eat. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it's like co cockles, mussels, that kind of stuff. Yes, it's just live, It's just seeds. We didn't have to eat them alive, because <laughs> they were in vinegar. And then we'd, <laughs> and we'd have a chat to press with Ginger, who was the local lady of negotiable affection. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was always there, always good for a laugh. And, uh, and then we had to go back to work. But they, they were nice days, they really were. But then, you know. I, I, as you know, my first job, my first day, I saw the dead body. And uh, when you work in local newspapers, uh, you spend an awful lot of time covering coroners' court.
course, or at least you did in those days, and my editor was an absolute stickler for having... You have columns, of course, here. Mm, yes, yes. You must have them. I mean, it's, yes, it's always the compulsion. British, more traditional. Uh, yeah. um, do you call them something different now? Uh, no, I think well, we, we, still, we still have um, an inquest into... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, so. same thing, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the, the colonists were always nice guys because it didn't really matter. I mean, I, that there was... They did their best not to have to find, to, to say that someone had committed suicide. Because um, of the social stigma and so on. By well, no, it was something like, no, well, when the noose is still warm, um, most of those don't quite apply. Uh, but the kind thing was took their life while the balance of their mind was disturbed. Mm. And I always liked that. Uh, because... Someone had died, and it was a tragedy, and it was a bad thing, and quite often, um, most of the suicides that I ever had to deal with, uh, that had tried to hang themselves, had hanged themselves in the most terrible ways that you can have. Uh, Pierpoint could get someone from the uh, cell door uh, to hatch a being... Uh, uh, to be dropping through the trap in seven and a quarter seconds. He was the last English hangman. Uh, but not everybody is as good as Pierpoint. And, and again, this is, this, is, this is information that's gone into your head and it's come back out again in, in this world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, so much you know, drawn from your own life, your own observations, from your own your reading, which has obviously always been very, very, very broad. But it, even the bad things give you some insights to people and how they think. And again, if I, I, mean, I, I, I apologise that these things tend to be macabre. I, mean, I, I remember going to see an elderly couple who had had a golden wedding. And, uh, we had to write, you know, let's say, it's all Darby and Jones stuff, and then say, how do you, uh, how do you, uh, um, how can you, um, can you give us a recipe for having a really good marriage? Oh, we have a lot of sex. <laughs> oh, we had a lot of sex for a very long time. It's amazing. Back in the old days, you know, when mum and dad was always watching, it's amazing what you could do on a bicycle, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I can't write this down. Did, did you ever get, write did this you get down. more details of what you yeah, could do on the bicycle? Yeah, and, um, and then that, that was the kind of funny one. And I was talking to a, a, um, a very, very elderly nurse um, who had been practising, I think, um, in the... Uh, before the 1920s. I mean, much, perhaps even a decade earlier than that, in the days when you really just were taught by other nurses. Right out in, out in the sticks. And um, with no penicillin, no, no, no modern aids, yeah. and just what you knew. And she told me she had killed two people. Uh, one of them was um, a man who was screaming himself to death uh, with cancer in a day when there was nothing whatsoever we could, yeah. could do about it. And, um, and uh, she and uh, 
his wife put some pillows or bolsters in those days over over his head and sat on them, sat on them till he stopped screaming. He was just so she could uh, pronounce him dead. And she said, the, in those days, the clergyman understood without having ever been told. And if something like this happened in a, to a, in a family, a very religious family, uh, the clergyman all the clergyman tended to know enough to um, leave it alone. Well, shall we say, take everyone downstairs to pray so that we don't get in the good nurse's way. Yes. Um, and that, as you may gather, stuck in my mind for a very long time. Um, I don't know why, for so much of my life, uh, I've, speak, I've spoken to people who have death in, as their trade, or at least as, as, as a, um, a, a, a curious addition to what their trade is. Um, coroners, for example, and midwives, but I will listen to anybody. But um, what sticks in my mind most of all was um, there was a terrible suicide. A woman had walked out onto the railway tracks uh, in time for the um, in time for the uh, express. Uh, and um, because our house could see the railway tracks, I was up first on the scene, and I really, really wish. I wasn't. I was there just after the police because they still didn't have told me And um, uh, the poor buggers, and I mean the police, because uh, were already uh, walking around with plastic bean bags. Black plastic bean bags. I can't see one of them now without that But that wasn't, you know. The first death I ever saw, the man had suffocated by falling down a well that was full of pig shit. Not nice, not nice, and he was multicoloured when they pulled him out, but he was dead, and so he was dead. And that one, the only thing I learned from that is that you can go on being sick, even when you've run out of anything to go to be sick with. But with this woman, who I shall never forget, um, I, for some reason, I, I, I strolled along the railway track, um, the opposite direction, believe me, that the police were taken. Um, and she had stepped out from behind a linesman's hut. We had this uh, in the intervals along the railway, just to keep tools and spares and things like that. Had so, a smoke and a cup of tea. Yes, well, this lady had had a smoke. Um, she had smoked six cigarettes before, uh, in the lee of the uh, hut, six cigarettes worth of deciding whether she was going to do it or not. And I just thought, you know, it, I, that image stays there in my head. And it's just of six cigarette butts. And I, I it felt some terrible remorse that I hadn't been there. I mean, how could I? Have been? You know, it's just say. why? Well, why was she so desperate? Yes, but you, yeah. how can that be done? I mean, it, uh, it's, it's just it isn't something because 
mean, even in those days, we had some people that would help, but it wasn't quite as, as good as it is now. And it was still a slightly punitive world that we lived in. And in fact, I, I can't remember if, in fact, that suicide had been made not, not legal, but shall we say, um, not punishable. I can't quite remember now. It certainly came in in my lifetime, and in the same way, in my early, not my actual early lifetime, that's when we stopped hanging people. And you just, you can't do anything about it, but just say this is the way of the world and it's full of this sort of stuff and the best you can do is, is make it as palatable as you can. It's probably a, a good point to, to talk about um, your support for I knew your segue there. It was bound to come back. You were, well, you were, you were I could see you giving that solemn look to your face. <laughs> I have a naturally solemn look sometimes. We, we should probably rotate back this I way again. There, were, are there people... Yeah, okay, there's a slight rotation here, folks. <laughs> we're, we're actually... Um, we've, we've, looking at this clock here, we've gone through our time so incredibly swiftly. Um, but they don't mind, they're getting extra value. Carry <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> on. I know you've been asked about this a lot, it's been a, a topic that's come up all the time, but I mean, since your, your diagnosis with early onset Alzheimer's uh, and public support of... of uh, Assisted dying. Assisted dying. So what, people, what term you prefer? Well, I, I prefer, because you're absolutely right, physician-assisted dying, such as they have in Holland, Belgium, Switzerland and Oregon. Um, my beef on it uh, is that whenever it's proposed, people who are against it, who are often, but not uniquely, um, from the religious right, uh, just throw up a, 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 a smoke from um, and, you know, and talk about Nazis and, um, and that you, there is no debate yes. you know you can say this is how it can be done these other countries do it you know, what can you say bad about the Dutch I mean you know, <laughs> you know smoke pipes have that has that those two little uh, streets? Um, windmills. Windmills are a little creepy. But windmills are a little creepy. <laughs> I, I'm actually talking about those two little streets in Amsterdam that you never went down, and nor did I. <laughs> Not even <laughs> um, no, I believe no one ever goes down. There. No, never. No, no one's ever gone down. No no obviously, there. except uh, except um, rugby supporters. <laughs> they, uh, I was a rugby supporter. Um, but they, they, they sort of, I, I'm the same with the Belgians. I mean, they work. No wonder Hercule Poirot was, was, was a bird. They, they sort of think things out, just decide amongst themselves, and, and get it sorted. Um, and yet, no one except us, um, which is a growing number, uh, wants even to debate. And one of the definitions of hell is the absence of reason. So the government is against it, we believe, this is not doing anything, but there is no reason. 
and governments have to have a reason for what they do. It must be a, a, a coherent reason. And I think it is because that there is no coherent reason that um, authority does not want to have a debate. Well, I believe any time they have a poll, there's enormous... Indeed, absolutely. Is that the same here? It's, it's the same here as well. Absolutely. So, mm. uh, I don't want to get into trouble for this, because I already... Uh, I'm apparently asking your Prime Minister to do something about this. This was rather set up. Thank you. This was rather set up um, by a journalist. But on the other hand, I didn't see why not. It's not my job to tell you guys what to do. But um, you know, I tell my own government what to do. Because one government at a time, guys. Uh, but you know, that's it. What is the reason? Yeah. Because. We know, or at least everyone thinks they know, or the world on the street is, that doctors are occasionally known to actually help. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Yes, you've heard that. Everyone yes. has. Everyone assures me that. Um, doctors assure me that, but obviously not in their hospital and not them. Yes. Many doctors have written to me. I have a friend. Yes. <laughs> many doctors have written to me at, at, at um, in risk of, of their future, I would imagine. Um, so thank goodness they are Discworld fans, and trust me, and I, and, I have a, and I have a fire, which is always burning in my office. Um, and they say, yes, yes, it doesn't happen as much now because everyone is very, very, very scared. But it sometimes happens, especially if you've made certain that the nurse with the crucifix is out of the world. One of the reasons I asked is because I imagine that Sometimes it's presumed that this has become a subject for you solely because of your, of your own position. Uh, but well, would I have gone into it? Anyway. I mean, one has to be sensible about this. Mm. Uh, but you've always very, very death. few men probably went in for, vote, for votes for women. Some did. But you probably have to be a woman to join up for votes for women. To really. That would be, yes, I mean, men, besides which, in the original campaigns, men weren't exactly, exactly welcome as fellow travellers. So, whatever it is that's going to go on that's affecting you, uh, you you're, you're going to be upfront about it. But in this one, it seemed to me peculiarly without reason. It, it seemed to me to be, I could be wrong. But uh, the last gasp of a kind of Anglo-Catholic faction that likes telling people what it should be doing. <coughs> and over the years, people saying, we know what we should be doing. We're quite happy with what we're doing. We don't need people to tell us what to do. We'll pay our taxes, thank you very much. And we'll deal with the other stuff as well. We are not... We don't actually acknowledge our elders, well, our elders, and we, we might acknowledge our dear old dad, he's a good lad, uh, besides which he gives me my pocket money, but, <laughs> but we don't acknowledge our betters, except for the Queen, God bless Her Majesty. <laughs> um, everyone says, well, you know, you're a bit of a republic, Republican. Aren't you? And, uh, and, um, and then you went and got um, uh, an OBE and, and you got a knighthood. And uh, I said, I really love I mean, um, it's very strange. 
standing there with quite a frail elderly woman is going. <laughs> um, they might have been accidents, they've been covered up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the same curious way that the honour system can be quite democratic at one end of the scale. I might tell you that later if we have, have time about that. Um, and I thought, what I like, and you haven't got this here, and I bet you wish you had it still. What I like is that periodically our Prime Minister, whoever he is, has to drive to Buckingham Palace, where a small lady is waiting, standing up always, um, and give him her hand, and just possibly, um, in my imagining, at least, this lady who, in fact, um, was Queen when uh, Churchill was Prime Minister, will say, would you be so kind as to tell me, while you have managed to mess up one's country so badly, <laughs> again. <laughs> I actually have a knighthood question here. This is, this is, I've been good, failing, good. And, and, failing, and, failing in my, uh, my job here of uh, Is it about the sword? It is about the sword. Oh, good, yes. But I need to find out who the, who the question is from, so we can uh, properly... This is from Amy Turner. Is Amy Turner here? Somewhere. I heard a slight clap. Amy Turner asks, Now that you've made your own sword, do you have any plans to start on some armour? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure anyone here knows about the sword because I'm a bit more fans. And, and, and I will say that um, uh, with the exception of my daughter Rihanna, and I can only uh, claim um, half of the work that went into the making of her, <laughs> um, the sword is the best thing I've ever made. <laughs> um, I know I've done a load of books, um, but the sword, first of all, is something I wasn't trained to do. And I'm a small guy and that's missing and that sort of thing isn't really good for it. Um, I managed to do it and I actually, but I, I'll tell you about the bit at the end with the sword. Um, there was two guys, Jake Keane and uh, Hector Cole. Hector Cole, is, you see him sometimes on Time Team. I love Time Team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Jake Keane was, was, oddly enough, I mean, God, if he existed, well, probably Darwin, possibly, meant that both of them did live not far away from me, and Jake showed me how to field walk and find the iron in the fields. And I said, do, they, do the farmers mind us taking it? And I said, no, it, it's metal, and it gets in the way of the car. You know, whenever I ask, can we field walk for iron? Sure, get rid of the bloody stuff. Yeah. So that was it. Um, and he taught me how to make the... Um, uh, to, to, to actually hammer the ore out more or less and to build the, the, build the um, uh, kiln and then, you, and then you burn slightly dry sheep, 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 sheep in it for a while which is just the right kind of temperature and kind of humidity to, to bring it up right and to, to put the charcoal in and get the charcoal to into the right size and there's lots of stuff to do um, and you definitely need at least for the first time anyway uh, even to be the hope of getting it, doing it done badly you're going to need someone that can 
show you the road. But beyond that, until you get to the very fine details, it, it's, it's handwork. Um, but the best piece was, I, I was actually making the sword along, um, along with, with Hector, um, or rather getting in his way. But at least the thing is, I actually banged the hell out of every piece of metal that you put my way. You got to use the and hammer. I got to use the hammer, and, and quite often didn't hit him with it, I <laughs> And he showed me, he showed me sort of pretty bits and things like that. I know. And if I had more time, and indeed more life, I suspect, I, I would go back and take more lessons. And make some armour, perhaps. Uh, well, no, I can tell you why not. Um, uh, when he, when we actually finished making the sword, because I, I couldn't make the hilt, um, because that you had to work in, in materials that, that I didn't really know how to use. I, I could have, I could have worked with the silver, but not with the horn, which you have to, the, the horn hand. Oh, the grip. And, and anyway, everyone knows the sword is the blade. The blade. Everything yes. else is, is other stuff. Yeah, of course, you know about this. Because you're a fantasy writer. Yes, you know about this stuff. It's my father's sword. It's had uh, mm, yeah. 17 hilts. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. Um, and uh, he said, I'm just not sure there is enough steel in this iron. It will still be a pretty good saw, iron age saw, which is what we were making one. Um, and, you know, one that uh, a would be um, uh, proud to have. But I just don't think you haven't got enough uh, um, steel in it. And you, you, get naturally a, a, you get naturally a curve of steel within the iron. And if you're lucky, you have just the right amount of steel. Um, but he'd done some tests and said, um, um, and so he was standing there and he'd got a, a bar stock of modern steel. Um, if you like, at no cost, I will actually work this bar steel into the, you know, the last bit of work. And then, um, you know, it would stand up you know, to, to modern thoughts. Well, certainly, actually some of them are practically weird. It's, you know, scalpels in the sky. Um, and, uh, and then he looked at me and uh, I said, well, you know what man is, don't you? And of course you do, don't you? Because I'm sure everybody here does. Yeah. Yes, so you're going to tell the people what he is. Well, it's magical energy. The, yes, the, the I said, that's it. What I want, for me, it's my sword. Everything about it is my sword. You know, I, I pulled it out of the ground. Um, I pulled it out of the ground. Uh, uh, I hammered it on the anvil and I took it off the anvil. And therefore, uh, the manor is mine. And uh, he said, um, no, 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 no. And, and I looked at him and he was smiling. And I said, have I said, have I answered the right have I answered the question, uh, a, a test here? And he said, well, <coughs> he opened a little drawer, and, like all forties are full of old furniture with, 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 with rusty things in them. And he took out this lump of metal and said, this here is a lump of Iron Age steel, quite rare, I think. 
And because he's working on this kind of fines and things yeah. for universities, he could, you know, um, I can work it into your sword, and then you will have a genuine Iron Age sword, but with steel in it. And may I remind you that the gift of a friend has manner as well. That's amazing. And I thought, that's even better. Yes. <laughs> that's even better. I mean, that was pure fantasy, wasn't it? There is, and, and Smith's are uh, magical. Of course, yeah, absolutely, he knew about that. This, mm. and, I mean, we put thunderbolt iron in it, and it was all that stuff. It's fantastic. I'm one But then, on, on to the actual <laughs> question. When I said, would you be able to help, would you help me, um, I, you know, I thought the best plate would be that. Right. No, that's metal bashing. You know, yes. That's no job for a swordsmith. Someone will help you with that. But, but not him. Uh, but that, you know, he, he, a lot of a lot of swordsmithing is blacksmithing up to a certain point, and then it's swordsmithing. Mm. Um, it's a higher um, art. Um, we, we haven't even got a, a scabbard for it yet, but there is someone out there that Who's can help you make one. Well, they help you make one. Well, probably, yeah. So there we are. Next question. We've gone very over time, but I'm going to quickly. I think these can be uh, these couple of questions here can perhaps be quite swift. Yes, okay. Before we get the, the shepherd's crooks come out and drag us off the stage. Um, this is from Matthew Blake, and it's what has been your favourite or most disappointing uh, adaptation of your work? I, there really haven't been that many, as it were, to be. Um, considered, you know, an unfortunate one. Uh, I, I, so, you know, I can't really put my finger on something like that. Um, although I think Going Postal is the one that most people like, for me, Hogfather was the best. You said the magic word, Hogfather. We have the teeth. We have the teeth. We have the teeth. What do we do with the teeth, boys and girls? <laughs> Now, since you are all Discworld fans, how many of you have actually had teeth from the, uh, the, the, uh, the actual uh, Tooth Fairies castle? <laughs> you have, haven't you? Now, these are quite hard plastic, so yes. watch, your, watch your eyes. So we're going to try this. <laughs> I'll try this side. The health and safety officers have... Uh... Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Can someone take this Watch up your to eyes. <laughs> Come on. I don't want you left out. How can we do this? I can't flirt. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do the best. Are, are you ready? To... I'm scared to throw. There we go. Pass them around. One more. One more. Do you know, I do believe that's never happened here before. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. And we've still got more. What do we do with those? Well, what we might do is I might give them all to some responsible person in the front row to, uh, to give out. Who wants to be responsible? Hang on. Some over here. Some over here. No, no, some no. Don't throw Come this person around there. later, perhaps. I want some on the way out. Oh, no, there are. There's some over there. Oh, no. Right. I'll do this. I'll do this. Okay. Are you not ready? Are you not ready? Come on. Might be an idea to shut your eyes. Careful. <laughs> there we are. 
You look very responsive. Oh no, can I have them back? How <laughs> you okay? Yeah, they're getting left out behind me. We should have brought some more. We're done. Ah, behind the book. Get back. They know where it is. Oh, we've got some more. Behind the book, we do have some more. Okay, I think that got me some. I'm losing my... We're, we're degenerating now into... into it, fires. Yes, isn't it nice? <laughs> Ready? You're going to have to grub about on the bottom, you know. Uh, No one hurt, I trust. <laughs> Sorry about that, madam. Sorry? Oh, Watch your oh. eyes. <laughs> you, have, you have spectacles. Watch your eyes. Oh, you've got it. Did you get your tooth? Would you like a tooth? Be honest with this lady. Have you... I think I've given them all away. Oh, no! The la no. No. There is one left. A tooth for a lady. One tooth. <laughs> We are well over time, but there's one thing left to be done, which in fact you all need to do. Because I believe that your birthday is coming up very, very soon. Oh my! And I'm sure that you probably haven't had happy birthday sung to you in the Sydney Opera House before. No. No. Well, it seems like a perfect occasion that we should take advantage of it. So I hope, ladies and gentlemen, you'll join with me in singing happy birthday to Sir Terry Pratchett. One. Two, three, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Terry Pratchett, happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. They'll be coming out of the Shepherd's Crooks any moment. <laughs> let's go, let's make a run for it. <laughs> this way. Okay, let's go, let's go. Which way go? This way. Okay, okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>